We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 13 through 14 today. It says that no temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way out so that you may be able to bear it. And then in verse 14, So then, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. Free, flee from idolatry. Verse 14 is a proverb. It's a standalone proverb in many ways, though we're going to also examine it in the context. And whenever we study a proverb, uh, it is important that we see the wisdom in the proverb in context of the book that it's contained in, also with optimistic wisdom literature and even pessimistic wisdom literature and with the teaching of the Bible as a whole. And so for that reason, we're going to be looking at a lot of passages of Scripture today because it is the most responsible way to study a proverb. And so uh, we, we do have those that will be up on the screen that will keep you from uh, damaging your thumb, turning uh, through. Uh, that's not how I damaged it, but that's a whole other story. Uh, let's just say it was sharp and in the kitchen. Is that enough? Uh, so we're going to be looking at a lot of passages of Scripture to help us better understand this proverb. Now I want to read it to you again and listen to the wisdom uh, that is here. No temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity. Today's sermon applies to everyone in the room. This is a common problem. If I was preaching today on fasting, then it would only be those that have food that that would be relevant. Those that have no food, they can't fast. They're starving. There's a difference, right? It seems like every week, either the text applies to you front and center in your life, or it doesn't, but today's text applies to every one of us. Because temptation is common is common. There's that great but God moment. But God is faithful. And Paul explains what he means by the faithfulness of God, that in that moment of temptation, he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation... He provides the way out so that you can bear it. So temptations are inevitable. We will face them. Everyone faces them. They're a common experience. And just a quick news flash. Uh, you are not going to defeat temptation with willpower. You will not. Willpower is powerless. Oh, it may work pretty good at 6 o'clock in the morning, and you may be able to make it through 8 o'clock in the morning. But whatever it is that is tempting you, as longer as the day goes on, your will tends to break down even more. Does anybody know what I'm talking about in the room? 
Willpower is not the answer. The only answer to overcoming temptation is supernatural. It is the power of God. You see, I can't just moralize you and say, you guys, just be better Christians. Love Jesus more. Be more devoted. That's weak. The only power we have to overcome temptation is divine power. It is supernatural intervention. However, we have to cooperate with what God is doing in our lives. In this text, he says you're not going to be tempted beyond what you are able. And then it doesn't say able to what? Did you notice that? It doesn't say resist. It doesn't say overcome. Instead, it just says, but with the temptation. Here's the key. He will also provide you the way out. But you have to cooperate with the escape route. He provides the way out. You can avoid the collision. The problem with many of us is we're playing chicken with our spiritual lives. And we want to know how close can we get without the catastrophic collision. He provides us a way out. We're going to circle back to this, but before we do that, as promised, I want to uh, bring to bear some other teaching of the scripture about temptation so that we're all on the same page and we're all talking about the same thing, okay? I want to go actually to 1 John uh, chapter 2, verse 16, where John kind of divides temptation into three parts, and it's a very helpful a division. He says, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Now we're going to get to that tripartite division here in just a moment. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes and the pride of life. But before we do that, John says something else here that we need to just clear up from the outset. The, our text says that he's not going to allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. And so we could get the idea that our Father is the one doing the tempting. Well, let's just clear that up right now. Because... John says, it is not from the Father. It is not from the Father. It is from the world. God is not the author of temptation. Now, he may test us, but that's different from temptation. I think back uh, 
uh, to when I was a high school athlete and the coach would push us right to our limits. One more rep, Wilson, he would say. One more rep as we try to push that weight up off the bench. One more. But it was also either he or someone was spotting to make sure I didn't hurt myself, but he wanted me to go as far as I could go so that my muscles would build. Same with running, same with other things. And so there's a difference between that and a sadistic person that is hoping the weight falls on them. See, there are times the trials come. And in those difficult days, we're not in the mood to categorize this. Is this a trial? Is this a temptation? Is it whatever? We're just feeling crushed. But in this moment of reflection, It's important for us to underscore the difference between testing that helps us grow and temptation that destroys us. And temptation does not come from the Father. James 1.13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Okay, with that established, let's look at these three divisions of temptation. In fact, if we had time, we would trace this to see that the desires of the flesh, the desires of the the eye, and the pride of life are the three weapons that Satan used against Adam and Eve in the garden. And if we had even more time, we could go to the temptation of Jesus And see that when Satan is tempting Jesus, these are the three tools that he was using. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. That's what's in his toolbox. He uses these three things to get you to succumb to temptation with the goal of destroying you spiritually. In essence, what he does is he takes God's good creation. You remember in the creation narrative, every time that the father paused from creation, he looked at what he had made and he said, it's good. Well, until he got to us. Then he said, it's very good. It's very good. God didn't create anything that wasn't good. But the tempter takes what is good and he twists it. He elongates it. And he turns it into a sword for us to fall on. For instance, we have a healthy, wholesome human desire that encourages us to eat when we're hungry, right? We have that healthy desire helps us not only to be well-nourished, 
but it helps us to procreate so that humanity continues after we die. That's good. What a husband and a wife share in intimacy is good. It's God's good creation. He intended that. And that desire is healthy. So is the desire to eat. So there's a difference between the healthy desire that the Father has given us and the twisted, perverted desire that Satan tempts us with. See, instead of just being healthy and filled, we become gluttonous and diseased. See the difference? Instead of a healthy husband-wife relationship, lust can spin out of control to where other people become objects of desire. Objects. It doesn't matter what happens to them. It doesn't matter. You know, uh, whenever you're tempted to look at pornography, you remember that person is somebody's daughter, that's somebody's sister, somebody's mother. And they're probably not doing it of their own free will. That temptation promotes human trafficking and modern-day slavery. You see how Satan takes something that is good and wholesome and beautiful and pure and then twists it. That's the desire of the flesh. The same thing happens with the desire of the eye. You know, a discriminating eye helps us to know the difference between bad and good and better and best. As I've aged, I've become more and more fascinated by art. And I love to look at beautiful works of art. A discriminating eye, a a taste, a flair for style. Those things are all healthy. Those are wonderful. But then what happens when we shift from that to having an envious eye? And the lust of the eye takes over and before long we're envious or we're greedy And we want more and more and more. And the problem is we think we can satisfy the problem that is within with stuff. Or we decide we'll just leave here and go there. The problem is wherever we go, there we are. And we take us with us. 
and the problems go with us. And then there's the pride of life. You know, there is a healthy pride that makes us make good life-sustaining decisions that allows us to offer our very best self to God and for others. In other words, when we say something of someone that they take pride in themselves, that's a healthy thing. That's a good thing. That's much better than looking at someone and say, boy, if they let themselves go, right? And yet Satan takes that healthy desire to present yourself well to God and to others. And before long, the person becomes a narcissistic, dead center of the universe where everything has to revolve around me. And so think about this proverb in light of this baseline understanding of temptation that Satan has three primary weapons and he uses those weapons in his war to destroy us spiritually. And he's coming after us. And he takes what is healthy and turns it into something that is evil and is wicked. Whether it's healthy desires, either of the flesh or of the eyes, or healthy pride, and he twists it. And suddenly, that which is to promote life and promote health destroys ourselves and destroys the people around us. Now, in that context, listen to the proverb once again. No temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity. Satan's not that creative. He's, he's, he's got three trick ponies. That's all he's got. And everyone experiences it. There's times when we're preaching, we say you're special. When it comes to temptation, I'm telling you, you're not so special. Everyone experiences this. But God is faithful. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way out so that you may be able to bear it. God is faithful. He gives you a way not to comply with Satan's destructive wishes for your life. Next week, We're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, where Joseph says to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. I can't wait till next Sunday. This Sunday, what we're learning is God intended it for good, but Satan intends it for evil. He wants to take the good, the wholesome, the healthy, and destroy you with it, with his twisting and his perversion. But God is not going to put up with it. He is not going to allow Satan 
and those that cooperate with his agenda to put more pressure on you than you are able, he's going to give you a way out. He's going to give you a way out. Why is God faithful? Because he can't be anything else but faithful. Deuteronomy 32.4 says, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. But God is faithful in this and he's faithful in everything else. He's faithful in a covenant relationship with his people in Deuteronomy 7.9. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. In fact, Paul begins this epistle to those in Corinth who were faithless and unfaithful fall, right? By saying this in verse 9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So by nature, Satan is a tempter. He's a twister. And he wants to use what God, God's good creation, change it, twist it, manipulate it to destroy you. But the scripture says God is faithful He's not going to allow more than you can bear, and he's going to give you a way of escape. And by being faithful in this, stick with me, by being faithful in this, God is being faithful to his character. Because he is a faithful God. It's God I serve. That's the God I know. I can tell you many times I've been unfaithful, but I can't tell you one when he has not been faithful. All right. It's time now for us to put this proverb into the context that Paul uses it in. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 7 through 10. Do not be idolaters. Now this is important because the end of verse 14, or in verse 14 at the end of this section, Paul says flee from idolatry. So this is important and it's part of our strategy in overcoming temptation. If you're in a situation where temptation is overpowering you, get out of there. Run. Flee. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, in these few verses, Paul alludes. Now remember, Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees, right? 
Paul was the real deal. He's not a Gentile speaking ill of the Jewish people. He's one of them. He had the finest education that he could have had in his time as a Jew. We know he was circumcised on the right day. Just down the line, every box you could check about being a good Jewish person, Paul had checked. And in these verses, he brings up, perhaps, the four most embarrassing moments of Israel. The first one, the first verse that we read, is an allusion back to Exodus chapter 32 where the children of Israel worshipped the golden calf while Moses was up on the mountain bringing down the Ten Commandments. With Aaron's help, they offered burnt offerings to the idol, feasted and drank, and indulged in reverie, is what it says in Exodus chapter 32, verses 1 through 5. This is the context that Paul puts this command or this promise, this declaration that God is not going to allow you to be tempted more than you're able. He reminds them of the low point of Israel's history when God has given them the Ten Commandments and they're worshiping an idol they made with their own hands. And then in verse 8, he reminded them of when Moab seduced Israel in uh, Numbers cha uh, chapter 25. The men indulged in immoral sexual relationships with the Moabitist women, resulting in a plague on the people, and 24,000 people died. This is serious. So, the golden calf, and now this sexual perversion with the Moabitess women, and what, what plague that brought upon the children of Israel. And then quickly he moves to verse 9, when the people tested the Lord uh, in Numbers chapter 21. God was providing for their needs with manna from heaven, but they complained about what God was giving them. They spoke against Moses, against the Lord, and the Lord sent fiery serpents to bite them, and many died. Numbers 21. And then he ends with an account of the people grumbling against Moses and Aaron in Numbers 16, resulting in a plague that killed 14,700 people in Numbers chapter 16. Collectively, these four events represent some of the lowest points for the children of Israel. And right after, Paul reminded them of their heritage. Then he talks about God's faithfulness with temptation. 
He's saying to them, we have not been faithful. But God is faithful. He's going to provide us with a way out. Friends, I am so grateful that our unfaithfulness does not nullify God's faithfulness. Romans chapter 3, verses 3 through 4 says, But if some were, what if some were unfaithful? Does this mean faithful, their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. He is faithful. So what do we do when we stand before a faithful God who has provided us a way of escape and we didn't take it? What do we do? Well, because God is faithful, we confess our sins to him and we turn to him for forgiveness. 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is the gospel hope, isn't it? Our hope is not our track record with faithfulness. It is his track record with faithfulness. That is our hope. There may be some among us in the beginning of their faith journey. And so I want to take a moment just to talk about how to confess your sins before the Lord. And then I'm going to turn back for those of us further along in our faith journey and talk to you about, we've talked about Satan's toolbox of temptations. Let's talk about ours of how to take the escape route that God has provided, okay? First, for those of you at the beginning of your journey, uh, let me share with you how you can know him personally today and experience the forgiveness that comes because of what Christ has done. I want to talk to you about his faithfulness. Now, we're all different. Everyone in the room is unique. You have a different DNA. Your fingerprints are different. But there's one way, at least one way, that we're all the same, and that is that all of us have sinned. The scripture says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You may be saying, I don't really fit in here. I'm not really a church person. Well, folks, you're among sinners. All of us have sinned. That's the one thing we all have in common. All of us have sinned and we've fallen short of the glory of God. Now, I know that some people have sinned more than others. But all of us have fallen short of God's glory. And the Bible teaches us that there is a consequence for that sin. It says that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, just as all of us will die physically one day, all who have sinned, all of us, will also experience a spiritual death as a result. However, because God loves us, he has provided a way possible that our sins can be removed and forgiven. 
God's love, it's not just words. It's not hypothetical in nature. It's proven. The scripture says that God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died for us on the cross, and when he did, he paid the price for our sin. It was a debt that we could not pay, and he offers forgiveness. He offers forgiveness to everyone who believe that Jesus not only died on the cross, but he rose from the dead and will submit themselves to his lordship. The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. With the mouth one confesses and is saved. Wherever you are on your faith journey, do you believe that Jesus died on the cross and that he rose from the dead? If you believe that, then all that is left for you to do is confess him to be the Lord of your life. For you to give your life to him and to follow him as Lord. Brother Joe, if you and the worship team can come and prepare for the prayer time that is to follow. Here in just a moment, I'm going to ask the prayer team to come, and they're going to be here at the front ready to uh, have a conversation with you and to pray with you to receive Christ as your Savior and Lord. And if you can't think of a good reason why you can't allow Jesus to be the Lord of your life, then I invite you to come. Come and pray with me and my wife or another member of the prayer team. This is, uh, this is the day that's going to change everything for you. We've talked about Satan's toolbox, and I want to talk briefly about how we respond to that. How do we participate with what God is doing in providing a way of escape for us? Well, for one thing, we do what the text has told us to do. We run. We do not stare into a head-on collision that's coming and play chicken with Satan. When you see the way out, you take the way out. Second, we pray for one another. We pray for strength. Our Lord taught us to pray in Matthew 6, 13, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We are a community praying for one another. We know that everyone is tempted. And so by name, we lift one another up. The third thing that I want you to remember is that Jesus was tempted. In every way that you've been tempted or will be tempted, and yet without sin, Hebrews 4, 15 through 16 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. 
Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We run. We cooperate. We are not complicit with Satan. We run. We pray for one another and we receive the prayer support of our brothers and sisters. And we remember that God is on our side. He has been tempted like we have. The only difference, he didn't sin. He's not wanting to squash you like a bug. He's wanting to restore you.